Welcome to Shakespeare's Pants, the podcast that explores the ins and outs of English domestic activity during the life and times of William Shakespeare. My name is Angela and I'm a Shakespearean, which is a strange thing to do with one's life. But in my attempt to be useful for a change, I'm using my otherwise pointless superpower to make history and literature come together for you, my lovely listeners. And so without further ado, here is my podcast, Shakespeare's Pants. Shakespeare's Pants. In this episode of Shakespeare's Pants, I'll be finding out about early modern undergarments, what they looked like and how people took care of them. I'll also be connecting all of this back to Shakespeare in a vague attempt to make a bit more sense of both the history and moments within the plays themselves. So let's do it with episode two, Undergarments. In the previous episode of Shakespeare's Pants, we discovered that our early modern English ancestors did indeed wipe and wash themselves, and that people of all sorts, notably the middling upwards, had a vested interest in being seen to be physically clean, because it signified their spiritual and, by implication, moral cleanliness. As well as faces and hands, linen or undergarments was a sure way to gauge a person's bodily and spiritual hygiene. Undergarments were made from linen, which is what they became known as simply linen. Here's Dr Sarah Reid to explain more. The idea wasn't that you immersed your whole body, it was that if you were a bit sweaty you'd go and change your linen shift for a clean one because linen was thought to draw impurities out of the body so it wasn't just um, a clothing item, it was actually doing a, a function on your body as well. In fact, linen was so absorbent that most people used scraps and strips of it for rubbing or chafing of the flesh in place of washing. Rubbing of the teeth, body and hair was standard practice and advocated for all ages, notably the elderly. Chafing the flesh, particularly older flesh with linen, was considered healthy as well as cleansing. This is Amy Belissian, who researches the early modern older body. They didn't want them to lose any important moistures out of their body. So, so they were a little worried that, well, doctors were anyway, were a little worried that if you expel too much moisture out of your body as an older person, then you might take some of the good humours that you need. This idea of enlivening the skin and enlivening an older body which, which was withered and decayed by, by rubbing them and waking them up. You've made it sweat a bit, which is good, and you've expelled some of, uh, some of the extraneous corrupted matter that you don't need, brought the blood, blood to that bit, which, which is good, and that's made that helpful. If you've, done, if you've rubbed the limbs, you've enlivened it and wakened it up with the spirit. This idea of the lively spirits heading out towards, towards the exterior parts of your body, not only would that aid those parts of the body, but if you're, if you're attracting fluids away from the centre of the body, then some of the fluids might be the harmful corrupted ones. And this was a good thing. You would much rather have something go wrong with your feet or your hands than your heart or your, your head or your lungs. Okay, so we use linen to move corrupted humours to the outer edges of the body. But there was more to linen than just being absorbent and good for chafing. 
Let's hear from Nick Fulcher from the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust. Linen's really good. It's really straightforward to weave because it has a very long natural thread. And linen can be incredibly fine. You can weave it so it's almost transparent. You know, we all moan today, don't we, about linen because it, it creases. But we do forget that it's easy to wash, easy to clean and easy to dry. Whereas we might now consider undergarments as supportive or protective wear for the flesh, for the early modern period, linen was protection for expensive garments from the body. But if you look very carefully at Tudor portraiture of ladies, where you can see the velvet line, usually just across the bust line, you'll see a white line underneath it or a pale line underneath it, which is exactly where the smock is sitting, protecting the dress above it. So let's begin with women's linen. The main item of underwear, as we understand the term today, is actually a smock, usually made of linen. So basically a very large shift with sleeves all the way to the wrist, at least below the knee, if not all the way to the floor. So if women were wearing smocks, what were men wearing? You're wearing a shirt, which is effectively the same thing. Men's tend to go to sort of waist level and then are split from the waist to about knee level. And the reason for the split is so that when you're getting dressed, you can effectively tuck it between your legs, which means that you can then get your breeches on over the top of it. From the Middle Ages, menswear began to evolve into something more protective for the genitals until braids became the norm, a kind of loose boxer short tied at the waist with a belt. For men, you have two options. You either have what is known as long braids or short braids. In Romeo and Juliet, Mercutio sees the nurse and her servant Peter and he announces them as a shirt and a smock. This is the equivalent of calling a man and a woman a vest and a bra. It's clearly designed to be a bit vulgar. Typical Mercutio, really. What's clear here is that the smock is synonymous with women and the shirt with men. Linen was also a very useful tool for women on their periods. Here's Sarah again. People who did fashion some sanitary protection used um, linen clouts. Clouts is a catch-all name for everything that you might do with a cloth. John Wilmot, Earl of Rochester, refers to in some of his bawdy poems about a double clout. So the idea was that, you know, you got your piece of linen, and you folded it several times, and then basically you just sort of scrunched it between your legs and, and hoped for the best. In some household accounts, including Elizabeth, uh, Elizabeth I's wardrobe, but very occasionally in private accounts, you will also find references to very thin belts. So it seems likely that to deal, to deal with the, the monthly situation or, or the situation of menstruation, that you're wearing a belt around your waist and literally having long strips of cloth tucked through the belt at the back, passed through between the legs, tucked through at the front. The bottom halves of smocks and some petticoats are usually red, um, dyed with madder or dyed with more expensive types of dye. So again, you know, the, the practical hygiene side of things here is that if, if you do bleed or, or soak, you're not actually staining the cloth that you're wearing, or if you are, it doesn't show up. 
All fabric, linen included, was an expensive investment, and so, like everything in the early modern period, the quality to which you had access depended on your disposable income, and by extension, your status or your sort. But of course, linen undergarments could be as elaborate and as expensive as some of the top materials. We used to seeing those portraits where the sleeves are slashed down so that you can see the undergarment underneath it. And that's a really interesting thing because it's, it, it's a way of showing off that even your undergarments are really, really expensive. This is all well and good for the upper sorts, but for some of the middling and all of the lower sorts, linen was likely to have been simple and changed only once a day. So drawing attention to it by poking it out of sleeve slits was a luxury afforded only to the very wealthy. In fact, linen was so valuable that it was bequeathed in wills to descendants and commonly to charitable causes. For example, men from the middling sorts often left money to their wives, specifically for the purpose of procuring linen and making undergarments for the local poor. In 1611, church wardens for the Christchurch parish in Bristol set out a list of costs for the clothing and feeding of an orphan, noting that a pair of hose for a baby would cost sixpence and two smocks would cost two shillings and one pence. By way of comparison, a pair of adults' leather shoes in a Bristol shoemaker's shop around the same time cost between 16 pence and 2 shillings. So that's the same price as two tiny linen smocks for a baby girl. I like to think that puts it into perspective. To be able to wash linen, you need time. Hence, expensive linens were indications that you could afford the labour associated with keeping as well as wearing these fabrics. Mistress Quickly, the jovial landlady in the Henry IV plays, makes an appearance in the comedy The Merry Wives of Windsor, in which she acts as housemaid to the French Dr Keys. The French doctor, my master. I may call him my master, look you, for I keep his house. And I wash, ring, brew, bake, scour, dress, meat and drink, make the beds and do all myself. Quickly is a manifestation of the doctor's middling status because she does his washing and his ringing for him. It's telling that in Hampton Court Palace, the only women employed to work there worked with the laundry. Women employed to clean clothes were known as washerwomen, and despite being essential to the running of a respectable household, in social terms they were incredibly lowly. Nick explains why. You have to have bare arms to be able to do the washing. Showing bare arms in society means that you really are, you know, the lowest of the low. In order for the middling and upper sorts to sport clean linen and follow the rules, washerwomen had, in a perverse sense, to do the opposite. They had to get dirty and flout the social niceties. The volume of linen one accumulated for washing was directly linked to status. The more you can afford to wash, the more you can own and wear. There's a fun reference to this in Henry IV Part Two, when Prince Hell jokes with his companion Poins about the latter's bad underwear habits. What a disgrace is it to me to remember thy name, to know thy face tomorrow, or to take note how many pair of stockings thou hast. Viz, these, and those that were thy peach-coloured ones, 
or to bear the inventory of thy shirts, one for superfluity and another for use. But that the tennis court keeper knows better than I, for it is a low ebb linen with thee when thou keepest not racket there. Hal is essentially mocking points for having few undergarments, that's two pairs of stockings and two shirts. And he jokes that if Poins doesn't show up for tennis matches, it's probably because he's run out of underwear. And I love the expression, low ebb linen. We should all adopt this. Hal's little dig at Poins reminds the audience that he is a prince with access to endless fabrics and linens, not to mention the leisure time to keep changing. There is, of course, another theory, which is that actually Poins is wealthy. Here's Sarah Reid. The, um, one of the ways that they demonstrated that was how infrequently you could have a wash day. So if you had, you know, so much linen, it could pile up for a, a month or longer. That showed how rich you were. <laughs> Whereas if you were always forever having to wash your shift because you owned two and you were, you know, you were wash and wear, then you, you, you weren't wealthy. So from this perspective, Poins actually has plenty of linen, which is why he's currently in low ebb, because he's deliberately allowed it to pile up to demonstrate his wealth. Being wealthy didn't necessarily preclude one from having foul linen. In Shakespeare's late romance Cymbeline, the foolish courtier Clotten is introduced to the audience with the following lines. Sir, I would advise you to shift a shirt. The violence of action hath made you reek as a sacrifice. Where air comes out, air comes in. There's none abroad so wholesome as that you vent. In short, Clotten reeks of sweat from all his action, and his attendant lord advises him to shift a shirt, basically to put on clean linen. Something, incidentally, that he refuses to do. I like to imagine this scene being performed really comically, with Cloten wafting around while his attendants inch further and further away from him. In The Merry Wives of Windsor, there's at least a scene and a half dedicated to the adventures of a laundry basket into which the hapless knight, Sir John Falstaff, is comically bundled and subsequently tossed into the river, with all the foul linen. It was a miracle to escape suffocation. And in the height of this bath, when I was more than half stewed in grease, like a Dutch dish, to be thrown into the Thames and cooled, glowing hot in that surge, like a horseshoe. Think of that. Hissing hot. Think of that, Master Brooke. Falstaff is mortified by the heat and stench from the greasy laundry, and then frozen by the sudden and unexpected immersion into the river. As we remember from the previous episode, this extreme change in temperature is considered very bad for the health. The laundry episode in The Merry Wives is a helpful reminder that access to water was vital for cleaning clothing for obvious reasons. But a proper water source like the Thames was also very handy for rinsing away the gritty soap. 
lye, lye soap. It's a very alkaline product made from sodium hydroxide, but you find sodium hydroxide in animal fats, but you also find it in ashes. So you often find that soaps are made of animal fat mixed with the ashes, which allows the chemical reaction to produce soap. And again, there's a pecking order with soap. Some some soaps are very basic and almost black in colour, and then you go up through the range where they sort of become grey, or you then end up with really fine white soaps, if you can afford it. But because they are really abrasive soaps and quite harsh chemical soaps, when you've done the washing, you've got to do an awful lot of rinsing. So actually, the Thames is a great place for that. Once linen was washed, it had to be dried. Because nobody had actually got round at this point to inventing linen lines as, as we know them today. Usually they're laid out on beautiful, you know, nice clean lawns to dry in the sunshine. You use your hedgerows and your, your bushes outside to drape your linen over because it, it will dry. The drying of linen on hedges and lawns came with its hazards. Our naughty knight, John Falstaff, is put in command of a vagabond army in Henry IV Part Two, who are so poor they can't afford linen. There's but a shirt and a half in all my company. And the half shirt is two napkins tacked together and thrown over the shoulders like an herald's coat without sleeves. And the shirt, to say the truth, stolen from my host at St Albans, or the red-nosed innkeeper of Daventry. But that's all one. They'll find linen enough on every hedge. This is a reference to the naughty practice of stealing linen off hedges, which is the equivalent of pinching knickers from washing lines. Shakespeare's plays are riddled with references to foul linen, invariably a signifier of aberrant character or behaviour. For instance, Falstaff's army is described as backbitten with marvellous foul linen. They are, one assumes, not to be trusted. And the Prince of Denmark, Hamlet, shocks Ophelia by visiting her closet with a pale shirt on show through his unlaced doublet and, more worryingly, his stockings fouled and ungirted. As well as unsavouriness of soul and body, and in Hamlet's case, mind, Foul linen was a sign of discourtesy, a selfishness, if you will, because cleaning one's clothes meant reducing the potential to endanger others through exposure to bad airs or contagions. Our early modern ancestors got terribly exercised about bad air or miasma because it was thought to be a sign of disease. So let's take a moment to consider how ill savers were handled in the early modern period. This is Lorna Giltrow Shaw, a doctoral student at the Shakespeare Institute. So if there was a bad smell, it meant that the air was polluted. And this could be caused by a variety of things such as uh, rotting waste in the streets, spoilt food, cesspits and even bad breath. Whenever you smelt an awful smell, it, it could indicate plague. In order to counteract bad smells, people carried around things called pomanders. These were dispensers, usually round, with small holes that contained a scented sponge or herbs that would sweeten the air around the wearer. This is Dr Hannah Lilly. There are quite a few of these 
beautifully elaborate gold pomanders and silver pomanders that survive within a museum context. And one was even found by a mudlarker a few years ago along the banks of the River Thames and is now in the British Museum and it's gold and it's adorned with pearls. So there are portraits from the 16th and 17th centuries from across Europe where people are wearing pomanders as a kind of aesthetic addition to someone's dress and it very much would signal to the people around the wearer that they were of extremely high status. If you couldn't afford a fancy gold or silver pomander, you'd probably have one made from wood, such as the boxwood one found on the Mary Rose ship amongst one of the archer's belongings. It's interesting that this Mary Rose example, Boxwood one, is one of the only ones to survive from the Mary Rose. The wearer has still tried to kind of pimp it up a bit and accessorise it because they've added this silk string to it in order to attach it to their scabbard. So even then you can see how someone of middling status might elevate an object or accessorise it in order to make it a bit more interesting. Given that pomanders were so pervasive, it stands to reason that early modern England was a smelly place. And this is partly due to the ways in which waste was accumulated. But fit a time for that in the next episode. Regardless of which sorts our English ancestors fell into, it's pretty certain that they purchased or inherited linen undergarments depending on their resources, and that they had fairly high standards about keeping these bits of linen neat and tidy. Not everyone had access to clean water, and even fewer people had the time to scrub and wash and dry. So having clean linen, regardless of salt, was the most obvious way of signalling your sense of self-worth, integrity and the resource that you had available to support your undergarment habits. So remember to scrub your scummy soap, pimp those pomanders and never get into a low ebb linen day. That's all for this episode of Shakespeare's Pants. Tune in next time for everyone's favourite subject, going to the loo in early modern England. In this episode, you heard from Dr Sarah Reid, Amy Belissian, Nick Fulcher, Lorna Giltroshaw, Dr Anna Lilly, and me, Dr Anjana Chohan. You also heard the voices of Catherine Forrester, Jonathan McGarity, and Richard Bunn. Thank you for listening to Shakespeare's Pants. Adieu. Shakespeare's pants.